Well, we began a six-week series this past week on the Shema Israel, and uh, we're going to carry on with that today. Uh, Shema, as we studied last week, really means listen, not just hear, but listen. And so we deliberated on that and wondered how we can be careful to listen to God's law, God's word to us. And uh, the letter Shin is what you see on the screen, uh, the background to these slides. And it is the, the Hebrew letter that begins the word Shema. And uh, in Hebrew, you read from the right to the left, so just so that you're not disoriented around this whole thing. Uh, the three-letter uh, Shema uh, begins with Shin, uh, the letter to the extreme right. We've been using the Bible Project video series on the Shema Israel. I find it really helpful. They, they do wonderful research and are uh, good teachers. And so week by week, we're going to just sort of zero in on a little piece of the Shema. And we're going to do that today as we go a little bit farther and say, well, what is it when we're talking about Lord? Shema Israel, listen, O Israel, the Lord. And then we can talk about that some more. So watch this video, please. So if you ever wondered where the name Jehovah came from, they just told you. If you're like me, you might want to just uh, later on go back to this recording and watch that again, because it's a fascinating, quick explanation. So remember that one of the commandments told the Israelites that they should not misuse the name of the Lord their God. And so that brought about this, what they call the ethic of avoidance, where the ancient Israelites were asking themselves, how can we be sure not to misuse the Lord's name? And so the practical answer to that question is to never say it. If you never say God's name, there's little chance that you're going to misuse it. They actually translated it later on into a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And when you read that commandment in the Septuagint, you will read the words, you shall not pronounce the name of the Lord your God. So you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God became you shall not pronounce the name of the Lord your God. And along with it came a whole mystical um, tradition of this magic or secret name of God. And all of it stems from the fact that God actually did give us a name, told us that we were to keep his name holy, and then in our human attempts, we have manipulated the use of the name that God gave so that we can do our best not to misuse it. The tragedy of all of that is that we have lost the, the very power, the very significance of the Lord's name. But uh, that, that's the tradition of the Shema um, as we come to it today. So when we read the Shema, um, we come across this terminology. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now if you were to go back into the, the Hebrew text there, you would discover that there is no word is. There is no way to express is, a present tense being verb. So the text literally says the Lord God, the Lord one. And as we've just seen on the Bible project, Adonai is the word that you would find in the Hebrew text for Lord. But that is um, simply the 
process of being careful not to use God's holy name. And so Adonai is put into the text in Deuteronomy 6 instead of the tetragrammaton, as we call it, which would be more properly um, written Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever um, version of all of this you find yourself coming to. So what is it to say, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one? Um, it is a declaration of our, fun, basically our foundational creed or our fundamental creed. The thing that we primarily believe is that the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. We're going to talk about what it means, the echad part of it, that the Lord is one. But if we can come back to the text and realize that what is being proposed and commanded by Moses in the Shema Israel is a foundational creedal statement that the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And of course, in, in the day in which it was written, the day in which it was commanded to the children of Israel, um, everybody had their God. Um, gods were set against gods in people's thinking, in their practice. Um, uh, nations thought that their gods were either blessing them as they went to war or cursing them as they went to war. They would try to appease their gods. They would try to please their gods. And in the face of all of that, um, God to Moses and then to his people says, here, here is the person that is your God. And much of the story of the Old Testament, of course, is the way that, that um, Jehovah God, Yahweh God, um, this God who has a holy name, is completely different, completely above any other God that you might imagine that there is. So against the background of the origin of the divine name, um, we, we, we come all the way forward into the New Testament. And as we have um, sometime in the past had a look at the Lord's Prayer, um, when, when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, they have asked him to, like John the Baptist, teach his disciples how to pray. So when Jesus says, all right, I will teach you how to pray, when you pray, say, and at that point, the disciples would have been keen to hear what Jesus would say because there was no known way of pronouncing the divine name. So what name would Jesus give them to call God? And of course, we get into the wonderful explanation that Jesus calls God Father. What a staggering thing that the disciples who were well-trained never to say, never to pronounce God's name, were told that the name that they could use for God was Abba, was the Aramaic word for a father, for, for a daddy. But we, we're coming to, to Luke chapter 10, and we're meeting this young lawyer who has come to Jesus with what, what seems to be a really honest question about what the most important commandment is that we should keep for eternal life or to um, please God. And Jesus, as I said last week, turns the question back on the young lawyer and he says, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the young lawyer pensively responds to Jesus by saying the words of the Shema. And then he, he couples that 
with the second part, which is well understood from the law, that when you love God, you also love one another. And so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. In other occurrences of this conversation, we hear Jesus actually articulate all of this, and he says, uh, here's, here's the law that matters. Love the Lord your God, the part that we know from the Shema, And then Jesus says, and the second, the first commandment is love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So when we come to the season of Lent, we're going to concentrate on that second part. And we're going to have a lot of suggestions about how we can actually do what Jesus affirms um, the young lawyer in saying you should love your neighbor as yourself. And we carry that into, into our creed. So the, the core of our creed is to love God with every part of us and to love one another. Uh, I mentioned a book called The Jesus Creed by Scott McKnight, and it's a, a good sort of New Testament uh, explanation of how it is to love God the way the covenant people of Israel were commanded and also the covenant people of the church were commanded. But let me come back with you to, to this young lawyer and, and just try to understand what was actually happening here. So when the young lawyer asked this rabbi a question, he had been paying attention to what Jesus had taught his disciples, taught the multitudes, and so he is posing the very quintessential faith question to this rabbi. And now as we understand what was happening, he was actually talking to God, wasn't he? And we can, we can separate those two notions from each other and, and miss the point that when Jesus is answering the lawyer, um, he's answering a question that the lawyer has actually asked God. So just let that sink in, that this young lawyer has dared to ask how do you get eternal life? How do you please God? And he's actually asking God. Now, there's the crux of the Christian faith, is that we understand that who it was that is being described uh, in the whole covenant story of Israel is in fact the one who is introduced in the person of Jesus. So one day Jesus said something very staggering. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews took up stones to stone him because they understood that he was claiming to be Jehovah. He was claiming to be Yahweh. He was claiming to be the one whose name they had been so carefully guarding. And they were astounded, astonished, and affronted by his claims. And, And they thought he shouldn't be tolerated. But when we come to Luke chapter 10 and meditate on all of this, we come back to the conversation and ask, who is he talking to? And oh my goodness, he was actually talking to God. Let let me remind you of how we understand all of that to be. We've just come through the Christmas season and we thought about the the message that came um, that basically migrates from Isaiah through to Matthew, and it's a prophecy in Isaiah. 
where God says, I will give you a sign. And the sign is this. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The song we just heard includes that. Emmanuel, God with us. And that is a beautiful, simple concept which is at the very same time incredibly complicated and complex because the whole advent of Jesus is the message of God with us, that God did not remain removed from us or away from us, but God actually came to be with us. And so the message that came through um, this incredible series of events when a baby was born in, in Bethlehem, the message is that this baby was actually no other than God himself. That's a very hard thing to understand and maybe a hard thing to believe. That God, the one who is above everything, the one who in the story of the Old Testament is shown to be far greater, far higher than any other God, he actually came, Emmanuel, and was born in our midst as, as a baby. So behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here is the Pauline understanding of all of the drama that was going on in Emmanuel, in, in God being God with us. He says that this, this name that Jesus has been given, he, he says, it's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's a very important theological understanding that Emmanuel this one who came, God with us, God who had come to be in our midst, um, this one has actually been given the name that's above every name. And in fact, Paul, in, in rather Pauline fashion, parses this out and says, well, well um, what other names are there? What other claims are there? And he says, see, because of the incredible um, humility of Jesus, his servant attitude and his servant life, when he stepped down and down and down and down, because of all of that, God has given him the name that's above every name. And Paul says, well, he's above every ruler, he's above every authority, he's above every power, he's above every dominion. In fact, he's above every name that is named and then again, Paul just opens himself wide up and says, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, that there is no name that is above the name that has been given to Jesus. And that name has been given to Jesus by God the Father. We will talk about this um, Christian understanding that we call the Trinity when we talk about the a part of the Shema where it's the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, 
the truth of that is that somehow or other it is true that God and Jesus are one and God has conferred upon Jesus the name that's above every name. So that if the name of God, that special name of God, that holy name of God in the Old Covenant was to be thought of as the God above gods, now God transfers that, that right or, or conveys that privilege on the Son and says it's his name that is going to be above every name, any name that you could ever consider that would be a contender for sovereignty or for deity. Paul says um, it is all in the name of Jesus that we find our, our, our place of worship and devotion and our place of service. So in Romans, um, we hear this again from the same writer. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In, in Romans 14, the quote that we saw was from Isaiah. Every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. Paul then takes that over and he says, and that's about giving praise to Jesus. And now in Philippians, Paul says, because of this step down of God in the person of Jesus, God has been anxious to hold him up and say what was promised by the prophet Isaiah, is now been fulfilled in my son. And the result of all of this, the culmination of everything, um, the eschatology, we might say, of everything, um, is, is that everybody, everything, everywhere will do two things. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's worth really dwelling on, really meditating on, that when everything is said and done, everything will be directed towards, everything will be um, collected towards the adoration of God that was promised by the prophets, that was anticipated in his name, his name, this tetragrammaton, this Yahweh, Jehovah, that we call Elohim, just by way of ease of being able to make some way we can call him something. All of that is brought forward into the final culmination of worship when every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God or every tongue will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, kind of, it loops back in around into a whole biblical theology, um, what we call theology proper, the theology of God. So can we collect all of this in our minds? Can we collect it all towards a young lawyer who is talking to the famous rabbi, doesn't understand that he's actually addressing God himself, but is answered by God himself, and the Shema Israel is rehearsed still as that which is the creed of faithful people. And then it is fully 
uh, explained out in the incarnation, in, in the God with us-ness of Jesus, the Emmanuel who was Jesus. When it comes down to it, um, Christianity is about two things, according to uh, Romans 14 here. That one day everyone will, what we are now invited to do, which is, everyone will bow his or her knee and everyone will confess with his or her tongue that Jesus is Lord. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to um, making a creedal declaration after we have actually made an act of submission. You know, the whole notion of submitting is, um, is something that we balk against. Um, as I, when I was a boy, I remember we used to wrestle a lot. And w- when the wrestling got too intense, somebody would finally say what? I submit. I submit. That means you have to stop piling it on. You have to leave me go. I submit. You win. You're stronger than I. You're bigger than I am. Whatever it is. But I submit. Well, well it's a strong word. Um, but what we are called to do is to actually submit. Um, they were called to actually bow the knee um, and submit with um, the confession, confession that we make. So we are to bow and we are to confess. And it seems to me that that's not only um, a kind of a, a creedal um, commitment uh, or a confessional commitment, but it's a, it's a constant commitment. It's it's what we're called to do. Um, ordinarily, it'll be for us a time in our lives where we come to the understanding of who Jesus is, and we realize that we must bow to Him and confess, and we all look together towards a final day when everyone will bow and everyone will confess. What will that look like? I am not sure what it will look like. Who all will be included? How will it happen? Will it be enforced? Will it come willingly? Will, will it come because of a realization? I'm not sure. But what is important for us today is probably to say, but as of right now, if I would call myself a follower of Christ, and if I see that as being in the tradition of faith, the judeo Christian tradition, I would say, well, what I am responsible for right now is to bow the knee and to confess with my tongue. To bow the knee, what what does that mean? Well, that is the submit. It is to say, um, I no longer um, take sovereignty of my life. I no longer consider my rights or my privileges sovereign, more important than anyone else's. Um, I look up and I say, well, um, I, I'm submitting to, I'm bowing to someone else. Uh, again, in, in many cultures today, to bow means to acknowledge the superiority of the other person. So it is simply that. It is to acknowledge the superiority of Christ, to acknowledge that he is Lord. I remember years ago, our church in Vancouver was having a conversation with another church that might like to merge and be part in in our building of one big congregation. 
And the other church were, was a Korean Presbyterian church. And we met one long afternoon with the elders of the Korean church and our elders. And when it began and ended, it began and ended with quite a drama. And that is the drama of greeting one another. And in the Korean culture, um, the way to greet someone is to bow lower than them, to give honor to them. I had a, a pastor on my staff in Branton, um, and we always had fun with him because he always needed to know how old people were in the room. Because depending on how old the others were would d determine how he would behave, toward, behave towards them. And so um, Young Do is his name. I'll tell him to watch this and remember. Um, he would be always in a flux about who's older than me so that I know how to properly honor them. So that was it in our bowing to one another. And that's not only in Korean cultures, in other Asian cultures. And in our culture, we might have our own version of that. But it simply is acknowledging that you are greater than me, that you are more important than me. And so I submit to you. I give over to you. Uh, I give over my opinion to you. I give over my privilege to you. I give over my choice to you. And I say, you first. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to submit to Jesus in that sense that we bow to him. Not only in you know, a, an initial creedal confession, not only at the end of time when it is imposed upon me, but out of a willing heart. Um, I say the Shema Israel is for me the understanding that God in Jesus has come to be Lord in my life and he demands that I submit to him as Lord. And then to confess is to put words to what I am signifying by, by my behavior. Um, I'm bowing and I am saying Jesus Christ is Lord. It's an important thing to say that and Again, in many ways, we have come to that point in our lives or the world will come to that point. But on a daily basis, we are regularly um, challenged to make Jesus Christ Lord. In what way will Jesus be Lord in what I say or what I do? How will his lordship be proven for me? And who is Lord? Who is important? To bow the knee and to confess with the lip is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. And that is what we willingly, happily commit, commit ourselves to. There's a story about a person who was in an art gallery. And as he was traveling in the art gallery, looking at the lovely portraits, he came to a portrait of Christ. And it was a picture of Christ on the cross. And as he looked at the beautiful portrait, he saw Christ on the cross and he saw the face of Christ. He saw the anguish in Christ's faith, face. And as he was looking, um, one of the, the guards of the gallery tapped him on the shoulder and said, lower. He looked over at the guard and the guard said, the artist painted this picture to be appreciated from a lower perspective. 
a lower position. So the man bent down, and from his lower position, he observes new beauties in the picture that he hadn't seen before. Lower, said the guard. Lower still. The men knelt down on one knee and looked up into the face of Christ. The new vantage point yielded new beauties to behold, to appreciate. But motioning with his flashlight toward the ground, the guard said, lower, you've got to go lower. The man now dropped down to two knees and looked up. Only then, as he looked up at the painting from such a low posture, could he realize the artist's intended perspective. Only then could he see the full beauty of the cross. That's what we're called to, to get down on one knee and then down on two knees, to bow to the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, um, to confess who he is and to live our lives under his lordship. Shema Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is one. The Father has given him the name, exalted him, and we now gladly, delightfully submit to him. We learned um, the Shema song last Sunday, and so as we finish this morning, I encourage you to listen along to learn it and sing it. It's one of those lovely little tunes that I think will play into your mind and your memory through the days of this week. And so I've asked Bethany if we can sing it each of the Sundays that we look at the Shema Yisrael. And uh, may it just remind us of what it is that it's a very, at the very heart of who we are as God's covenant people.